Welcome to the Rock Christian Church Podcast. Today's message is Divine Providence by Pastor Sean Wood. If you've got your Bibles and you'd like to meet me in Romans chapter 8, I'm going to pray before we come around God's Word. Father, I pray this morning, wake us up. We are prone to falling asleep, Lord, and I ask that you would wake us up. That our ears would be open, that our eyes would be open, and that our hearts would be ready for your word this morning. Thank you for the message that you have for us this morning. In Jesus' mighty name. Amen. Okay, Romans chapter 8. We're going we're gonna to kind of glance through a few verses and get to... Uh, some very meaty words in a moment. Uh, for those that uh, know, I've, I have said a few times that when I was in Tasmania, I used to be a taxi driver. I had three of my own taxis. Uh, and I drove something like six nights a week for like six years. And uh, it, it's a snapshot, by the way, into the heart of mankind, what happens after dark. Um, and I'm not going to bore you with, with taxi stories. I could write a book, but... Uh, in Launceston, a city of you know, roughly 200,000 people, I was pretty happy with the fact that after a couple of years, the street atlas in my taxi was nothing more than a decoration. Somebody would get into my cab and say, I'm going to such and such a street, off we'd go. No dramas at all. I knew the streets, I knew the cul-de-sacs, I, I knew, it wasn't hard, small city, I get that. But you kind of learn your way around. Some of the new places, people might say, well, I'm in the new subdivision, it's off this street. It wasn't hard to find. Everything was pretty easy to find. But then humility hit when I got to Brisbane. <laughs> now, I've had people visit Launceston and go, man, it's hard to find your way around this place. Yeah, you want to try Brisbane. And, and I hadn't been here long, and uh, a, a pastor on the north side asked me to come and speak at one of his, at his, one of his meetings, and I thought, yep, no worries, and... Wow, I, I have got a greater appreciation for GPS maps. <laughs> yeah? So now nearly everywhere I go in Brisbane, I'm using maps because uh, I, I need to find my way around. And it's interesting because the map says 400 metres, turn right, turn left. But I've been here for four years now. And, uh, you know, Proverbs says that God will tear down the house of the proud. And God does it to me on a daily basis. So I'm now listening to Google Maps. I'm thinking, I want to go to the north side, but I've been here for four years now. I know my way around, and and Maps is taking me a certain way. And I think, you know what? I reckon this way's quicker and easier. (laughs) Who knows the Bible wasn't written on what man reckons? (laughs) Praise God for that. Uh, And how many people know that if the GPS says turn right, it's inadvisable to turn left? And, and I've decided at times that I'm going to go different ways and I found myself in a whole world of hurt. I, I found myself in places I didn't even know existed. I, I, I've decided I'd like to go to Kelvin Grove and I've ended up in places I, I, I don't know. And sometimes that can be like our life. Sometimes when... We should have taken a right turn, we take a left turn. Sometimes we think we know better and we'll, no, I've got this, God. I'll take the shortcut to where you're taking me. So I'll I'll go around this way. But what I love about GPS maps kind of highlights God 
whenever I take a wrong turn immediately, the GPS maps begins to reroute me back to where I should be going. Have you ever noticed that? You t take a left turn, take a right turn. In Brisbane, you just end up going around in circles. It's, it's rather confusing, but that's a lot like God. You know, we take a left turn quite often when we should take a right turn, and God immediately doesn't say anything. He just says, 400 metres, turn left. God never changes the destination. GPS maps never change. Once I put that destination in, the maps on my phone never changes the destination. Doesn't matter what I do wrong, doesn't matter where I go, doesn't matter how I go about it, the maps just reroutes me. That's okay, we'll just go back around another way. And that's just like God. In fact, that very aptly describes divine providence. And I have a story that i like to finish with today that's a very beautiful story that highlights divine providence, but there was a man that was born in 1859 and his name was Francis Thompson. And Francis Thompson was uh, a medical student. At 18 years of age, he left to become a medical student. And uh, at 26 years of age, he left the medical profession. His dad was a doctor, so he was a qualified medical doctor. He left that to follow his passion of literature. And, of course, it doesn't pay much. I, I, I remember, uh, if, if you want to know uh, kind of what's the difference between a large pizza and a literature, literature degree, a large pizza can feed a family of four. And what he soon found was literature's great and I'm good at it, but it doesn't pay the bills. And he ends up on the streets of London and he ends up homeless. He ends up sleeping under bridges for some many years and he becomes an opium addict because of his nervous condition that he had. After many years, he would uh, find himself uh, taken in by a prostitute. A prostitute takes him in, uh, looks after him for some time um, until he's later discovered, because he scribbled a poem, a very haunting poem, he scribbled a poem on a piece of paper and some publishers discovered it. The poem's called The Hound of Heaven. And I'm not going to read The Hound of Heaven because um, we haven't got the time here this morning, I can guarantee you that. It's a very, very long poem. But if you break it down, it sounds like this. It sounds like a man that had run away from God. He had a knowledge of God, but he says, I fled you. I fled you here, down the nights, down the day. I fled you. But in the end, he says, the ever relentless pursuit. God is like that GPS maps. He just never leaves you alone. Anybody ever, else ever notice that? You walk away from God and he's just right there. And you, you want to get away from God, you want to run away from the calling of God, whatever it is, God is right there. Francis Thompson wrote about the hound of heaven. He died at the age of 48 in 1907. But his testimony is of a God that relentlessly pursued him, even though he ran away, even though he was a long way from God, God relentlessly pursued him and that kind of sums up where we're heading in Scripture today. And what I want to do is we're going to touch briefly on a few verses before we get there. But this morning I want to put away labels like Calvinism. I just I want to sit them over there for the moment. And I want to sit labels like Arminianism. I just want to sit them over there. We'll deal with them later on. I just want to deal this morning with what Scripture's got for us. And what is the message of Romans chapter 8? It uses some words that I believe have been misconstrued. In fact, we're going to see they have been misconstrued as we go through. But 
Paul, we finished last week in Romans uh, chapter 8, verse 16, speaking about adoption, speaking about our Abba Father. Verse 17, he finishes that paragraph with, and if children, then heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ. Everybody loves that, don't they? Yeah, heirs with Christ. Whoa, powerful. But we forget the last part of that verse, provided we suffer with him. <laughs> yeah, don't preach that part, Pastor. Just go past that one, please. Okay. Provided we suffer with him in order that we may also be glorified with him. Uh, Verse 18, Paul says, and I'm not going to spend much time in this paragraph, but he says, I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. Now he's kind of casting futuristic. Remember, Paul is writing to give assurance and security to believers. Verse 19, for the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. Verse 20, this is one I want to pause at. And I think this is something that all of us need to to grasp the reality of this. Verse 20 says, for the creation was subjected to futility. Anybody here a part of creation? I want you to know that entitles you to be subjected to futility. Not willingly, but because of him who subjected it in hope. Oh, hello. This is one of those, this is one of those verses where we want to turn left instead of turning right. Because are you saying that God has subjected all of creation to futility? Yes, that's exactly what I'm saying. For those that were here a couple of years ago, we did a series on, on the book of Ecclesiastes. One of my favourite books in the Old Testament is the book of Ecclesiastes. Here's why. Uh, somebody finally had enough gusto to lift the lid on what life is actually like. Too many of us go through life uh, in neglect of the enormous elephants in the room. We, we know that there is suffering in this world. We know that uh, good things happen to bad people. We know that bad things happen to good people. It's kind of what I call the Bradbury principle. You ever, anybody remember Stephen Bradbury, the ice skater? I mean, I remember watching an interview where he puffed his chest out and said, you can see here how I'm positioning myself. He didn't position himself at all. Uh, everybody else in the race positioned him there because they were faster and far more quicker. They just fell over and he skated across the line. Ecclesiastes puts it like this. Sometimes the race doesn't go to the swift. Sometimes the battle doesn't always go to the strong. Sometimes good people become unwell. Have you ever noticed that? Creation's been subject to futility. And that word futility there is exactly the same word that Ecclesiastes uses when he says it is vanity. In fact, the preacher in Ecclesiastes says it is vanity of vanities or it's hevel. And what he's trying to say is it's a smoke or it's a vapour. This life gives the appearance of something solid, but like smoke, when you try to grab hold of it, there's nothing there. You can't build your life. On this, But why would God do that? Well, Paul thought you might ask that question. But because of him who subjected it in hope that the creation itself would be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. Why is God creating uncertainty? Why does God allow uncertainty? Why does God allow an emptiness and a futility in our lives so that we will seek after him? Uh, on the 27th of September, in the night time, we're going to talk about a passage of Scripture which talks about God's people being subjected to all kinds of crisis. 
<laughs> and God subjected them to it. Hmm. I don't know about our gore, but that can be an inconvenient truth. Sometimes. Divine providence doesn't require our understanding. The God that works all things, the sovereign God that works all things, doesn't require you to understand it. Doesn't require you to give him permission to do it. But hold that thought. Because I have some really good news for every person in this room. I'm going to skip a passage now. Come down to verse 26. Likewise, the Spirit helps us in our weaknesses. There's some great news to begin with. But that's not where I'm going. For we do not know what to pray for as we ought, but the Spirit himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. Now, there is no other reference for groanings, and so therefore uh, I'm not going to attempt to try and tell you what Paul means by groanings, except to say this. It's not tongues. It's not words, and it's an inward expression of the Holy Spirit for a place that is home. Verse 27, And he who searches hearts knows what is the mind of the Spirit, because the Spirit intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. But here's the verse we all want to get to. Here's the verse we dance up and down the aisles in church, and we should dance according to this verse, because it says, verse 28 says, And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. But I need to be very clear. Paul was clear. All things, but not everybody. All things work together for the good of those who? Love God. And that's not a measure. We'll get to this in a moment. Um, God doesn't work things for your good if you love him more. It's just for those that are in his family. But I love this verse because... What Paul is saying here is he's saying that all things work together for your good. And we need to press the pause button. Do you really mean all things, Paul? Do you really mean that when I take a left turn, when I should take a right turn, that God's going to work that for my good? Yes. You know, when, I'm, when I ignore the GPS maps and I take a left turn, something that uh, I, I need to highlight, we are the children of God. But if you take a left turn when you're supposed to take a right turn, you're probably going to end up in a horrible traffic position and you're going to suffer the consequences if you ignore the GPS maps kind of goes the same way with God. God's like, I haven't given up on you, and we're still moving towards the same destination, but you're going to feel a little bit of pain along the way because you took the wrong turn. (laughs) Sometimes that happens, yes. Does that mean that when I miss it, completely blow it, and sin that God can turn that around for his glory and my good? Yeah. Ask Peter. Peter the disciple who came the apostle. Peter was a pillar of the early church and so he should have been too. But the defining moment in Peter's life wasn't Pentecost. <laughs> the defining moment in Peter's life wasn't when he confessed Jesus as the Messiah in Matthew chapter 16. That was not the defining moment. The defining moment in Peter's life was when the rooster crowed. Because Peter all of a sudden got a shot, <laughs> a snapshot of his heart and all of a sudden he realised, I'm not all of that. Sometimes when we decide we're going our own way, we think we're all of that plus the breakfast. No. But Peter soon realised, um, I'm, not, I'm not as good as I thought I was. Paul from that, uh, sorry, Peter from that moment is a completely different man. And if you read John chapter 21, you will realise 
that the God of all providence, it doesn't matter the mistakes you make, doesn't matter, it's all about loving God, it doesn't matter the mistakes you make. You can read Peter's biography, but in John chapter 21, Jesus, just like those GPS maps, he was still going to the right place. Do you love me, Paul? Uh, Peter? Do you love me, Peter? Yes. Right, well, we're still going to the same place. You're still going to be a pillar of the church. I still want you to, to minister to everybody in the church. What Jesus said to him was, uh, Satan has desired to sift you as wheat. This is before it happened. Jesus said, but I've prayed for you. Here it comes. What did Jesus pray for Peter? Jesus didn't pray that the circumstances would be taken away. Jesus didn't pray that the trial would be removed. Jesus didn't pray any of that. He said, I pray that your faith will remain. And I love what Jesus says next. When, (laughs) Jesus doesn't deal with the word if, by the way. When you are restored, restore your brothers. So yes, all things is what Paul means. Uh, But all things work together for good. And here's the profound thing. God at this very second, and every second of every day, God is actively, energetically, and desirably working for your good. It doesn't seem like it sometimes. I don't know about anybody else, but sometimes it doesn't seem like those circumstances that are coming our way are for our good. I, uh, I, I appreciate Ravi Zacharias, who passed away at the age of 74 this year, a great man that has deposited a lot uh, into the, the Christian faith recently. But he writes a book called The Grand Weaver, and he, you see, um, Ravi Zacharias was from India and he had an understanding of tapestry. And he, began, he begins to expose the threads of our lives and how important they are. The thread of where you're born and your upbringing and who your parents are and what your heritage is and, and what your faith is and all of these threads. He begins to highlight all these threads in our lives. And then he speaks about how God weaves all the threads of our lives to this beautiful picture of a tapestry. But Uh, he also highlights that if you have a look at tapestries and you're looking at the wrong side, all you will see is random threads. I don't know if anybody's ever seen that, but from the wrong side or the back side of a tapestry, all you can see is all these random threads chaotically going all over the place. And from that perspective, you stand there and go, this is all random, none of it makes sense. But if you step on the other side for just a brief second, you will see a beautiful picture is coming together. And... Divine providence sometimes is a matter of perspective. Sometimes all we see is the random chaos on one side when if we could have a look from God's side for just a moment, we would see that he is weaving a beautiful picture, which is your story, which is your life. All things work together. The grand weaver is ever working energetically for you. All things work together for the good of those who are called according to his purpose. And I'm going to touch on the word called in a little bit of a moment because it's a very important word. But now we're going to move on to some words that sometimes people find to be a little bit scary. For those who are called according to his purpose, verse 29, for those whom he foreknew, he also predestined. Oh, hello. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And we're going to unpack these words deliberately and slowly right now because they have been misconstrued. 
When we get to Romans chapter 9, which is coming in some time, we will deal in greater depth the apparent contention that exists between the absolute sovereignty of God and man's responsibility. There appears to be a contention between those two in Scripture. I actually don't think there is a contention. I think they coexist very beautifully, and we'll get more into that as we uh, move into Romans chapter 9. But the reason I touch on that is many people have read the word for new, for know, or for knowledge to be all about information known beforehand. And I'll tell you why it's dangerous. It's dangerous because if we're not careful, it paints the picture of God as being this grand puppet master that pulls some strings but neglects to pull others. People have painted foreknowledge as being uh, information that God knows beforehand. I'm not saying that God doesn't know everything. God knows God exists in a dimension that we don't. We're subject to time. God, God's not subject to time. But some people have taken that word for knowledge as God looking down the chasm of history and going, well, I can see a moral fitness in that person or I can see faith in that person, so I'm going to pull that string. That's not what this word means. The word foreknow, foresee, foreknowledge, that word is used six times in Scripture in the New Testament. Two times alone it is used in conjunction with knowledge known beforehand. Only twice is it used as information known beforehand. In Acts 26 verse 5, it is a reference to knowledge that Agrippa would have had beforehand. You would have already known all this. You have all the information about this new sect. It's used in 2 Peter 3.17 as information beforehand. But the other four times, the very prominent times that it's used in Scripture, it means something vastly different. It means to, the word know there is an intimate relationship. The Greek word for foreknowledge is prognosko, which is where we get our word for prognosis. It simply means this. It means that God has made a determined decision to set his love and affection on you. Before you may have even had a thought about God. Now, at no point in time does foreknowledge at any point, does that override your free will or the fact that you need to choose God? We're going to deal with that in a moment. But in a relationship setting, foreknowledge means this, divine initiative. It means that before you had any thoughts of God, while you were a long way away from God, while most of us were still fending God off and we didn't want anything to do with the idea of God, God says, I still love you, I still love you, I still love you, I still love you. And he goes about proving it to every single one of us. That's foreknowledge. In fact, uh, Murray, one commentator, says you could basically say the, the word that is synonymous with foreknow here is to forelove. If you think about it in, in terms of, uh, of a relationship, there was a point in time when Jeanette wanted absolutely nothing to do with Mark. But Mark made a decision. <laughs> I'll let you deal with that one later. (laughs) But Mark made a decision to set his love and affection on Jeanette. And the great universal marriage is when man marries God. That's Paul when he's talking about marriage in Ephesians. says, I'm talking about the mystery of the gospel. 
talking about the mystery of Jesus and his body, about how we come together. There's a, there's a divine courtship there. In fact, the Gospel of John uses a particular word to describe divine courtship, it's called the word draw. Jesus said in the Gospel of John, if I shall be lifted up from the earth, which is not a reference to how well we praise here on Sunday mornings, but if I shall be lifted up from the earth, I will draw all men unto me. What's he saying? If people get the revelation of God on the cross, it will be like a divine courtship. You'll see my love in action and it will draw you to me. You might ask yourself, how do people get that revelation? Tune in in September. For those whom he foreknew, here's another scary word, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. The word predestined is exactly how you would kind of understand it with the GPS maps. You lock the destination in. Before any of us say yes to God, God's got a destination locked in. And if you look at the word predestination in scripture, nowhere does it reference you being predestined to salvation. That's not what it says. Ephesians chapter 1 verse 5 comes the closest when it says you have been predestined to adoption as sons. It's not predestined to salvation entering into relationship with God. It's the position you hold when you get there. So for all of us, the minute we say yes to God, God has a destination in mind. This is a security, remember. This is an assurance, remember. God has predetermined or foreordained. You can use both of those words to describe predestined. But you, he has predestined, foreordained, that you would hold a particular position. And that is to be conformed to the image of his son. That's where he's taking every one of you. The minute you say yes to Jesus... It's like the GPS maps. God goes, okay, we're on the path to conformity to Jesus Christ. And we take some left turns and we take some right turns and we zig and we zag. And God says, that's okay, we're just going to keep doing this. Now, in light of that question, I'd like to highlight the word blessing now. I'm going to digress for a moment. Because if all of us, if the destination that God has in mind for every single one of us is to be conformed into the image of his son, what's the biggest blessing God could give you right now? Anything that brings you closer to the image of Christ. I've got some really good news for everybody in this room. How many of us right now could say that when I was comfortable and everything was going swimmingly, I was the closest I've ever been to God? Most of us are going to go, nah, nah. When when the crap hit the fan and coronavirus hit the globe and there was all this uncertainty, all of a sudden I realised that the only certainty I could grab hold of was God. So now some of those adverse circumstances, divine providence, that God allows in your life may just be fashioning you into the image of his son. Maybe that person that irritates you at church don't look to the left or the right. (laughs) Maybe that person that irritates you at church is just the person God's brought into your life to make you more like Christ, to teach you what it is to have grace and patience and love. Maybe God brings pastors into you. No, we won't go down that path. (laughs) We'll stop there before we go too far down the rabbit hole. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. Praise God. I've got a question 
However, for the Calvinists this morning, and you have a couple at Lagana, Earl, I have a question for the Calvinists. If God knows information about you beforehand, and if God places his finger upon you and, uh, God, and against your will and against your choice, you're going to accept God because that's kind of where theistic determinism goes, then why do we need this next word? For those whom he predestined, he also called. Why do you need to call people? That word there, called, is how we would understand it to be a summons. You know when, um, for, for the brothers in the house that know what a summons is, you know when that guy knocks on your door and he's got a blue hat on? He's got a piece of paper in his hand? And he says, you've been served? You know those, am I the only one? No one else knows that? <laughs> all right. D- D- divine providence, that's all I can put that down to. <clears throat> but that's exactly the same thing. It's like God making his invitation or his summons to you. Now, have no doubt that when John 3.16 that says, whosoever shall believe, that whosoever means absolutely whosoever. There is the general invitation to come into relationship with God, but what this call is, is where God takes that general universal invitation and makes it personal to you. Cool. be called of God. I, I remember, um, I shared a little bit of my story last week, but I remember um, bef- just before I was a ward of the state, uh, I remember riding my bike and at that time they just released legislation that you had to wear a helmet. With a head like this, you've got to protect it, right? So the answer you're looking for is yes, by the way. <laughs> so anyway, I'm just minding my own business um, riding my bike, and a guy from across the road who I'd never met before shouted at me, I don't believe in them. And he, he piqued my curiosity. And I got off my bike and I went across the road and he introduced himself. He said, my name is Greg. And I told him that my name was Sean. He said, you know, I had a dream that I was going to speak to a guy named Sean a few nights ago. And of course, you're young, I was 12 years of age, yeah, okay, whatever. Uh, and I begin talking to this guy and I'm walking along the street talking to this guy. And I found this guy to be fascinating. But in the few months before I would become a ward of the state and, and, meet, and, and find out for sure that angels walk the earth, because I, I met one of them. But before all of that happened, this guy spent like three months. He would get up in the morning and he would come and do the paper round with me and help me do my paper round. And, and he would catch up with me after school and some other guys as well. And Although all of this in today's society might sound inappropriate, he never invited me back to his house. And I can't remember one time when he even so much as shook my hand or touched my shoulder. But for three months, he diligently and patiently exposed me to the truth of the gospel. And for the first time in my life, I felt like I had been called. A lot of water went under the bridge. I haven't seen that man since. I, I remember that just as abruptly as he came into my life was as abruptly as he left. I, I, I knew where he lived. I knew the set of flats that he lived in. I can remember trying to find him, but just as quickly as he came was as quickly as he went. The people that said, yeah, well, we kind of saw a guy come and go, but we never really knew him or spoke to him. 
but the call of the gospel. And the important thing for us to realise is that God makes, chooses to make that call to everybody else through us. J.I. Packer, one of the greatest theologians of the last century, died recently, actually, at the ripe old age of 93 or 94, I think. Uh, had, a, had an accident when he was young, smacked in the head, uh, ran into a car, had a big dent in his head, was known for this big dent in his head. But great thinker. Uh, he writes the book Knowing God. Oh, classic. Um, but he also writes another classic called Evangelism and the Sovereignty of God. And in that, he exposes a very beautiful truth. He says, you know, at the end of the day, each and every one of us know that God is responsible for our salvation. You know, the, the fact that we are saved is all to the glory of God, absolutely to the glory of God. It, it is a work of God. He pre-loves us. He calls us. He, he, he initiates divine courtship with every one of us. It's absolutely a work of God. And J.I. Packer says, I know this for two reasons. The first one, he says, is because when we pray, we, all of us, whether we realise it or not, all of us give God thanks for our salvation. We thank God that we are saved. We thank Jesus that he died for us, says J.I. Packer. He says, and the second one is, he says, we also know that God is the main agent in salvation for the reason that any of us that have loved ones that we desire to be saved, we ask God to save them. And we ask God to save them. Why? Because it's not something we can do. You can't save yourself. And I can't save anybody else either. But God chooses to use all of us as agents to expose everybody else to that great call. The call of God. Paul wants these believers to have an assurance that the God who has saved you won't let you go. Verse 29, for those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom he predestined, he also called. And I don't know about anybody else, but when God called me, I felt enormously unworthy which is why I needed this next word. For those whom he called, he also justified. That's the message of the gospel. The message of the gospel is you don't stand in your righteousness, you stand in Christ's righteousness. John Calvin, great expositor of scripture, John Calvin says, Jesus did not come to make us righteous. He came to be our righteousness. We now stand in his righteousness. For those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified... Just like Heather Stewart, he also glorified. That's the assurance every person in this room has. If, if you could sit down, and many of us did, but if you could sit down for any length of time and talk to Heather, you will understand that there was a God of divine providence that worked miracles in her life. But in, the, in, the, in the three years that I've known her, God worked tremendous miracles in her life. He was the God that, after many left turns, put her back right where she needed to be. Praise God. I thank him for that. I want to finish this morning as I ask the worship team to come back. I want to read you a story. I was going to try and remember it, but I couldn't remember it properly. I want to read you a story. I've read this story before, but I love this story. And when we're talking about divine providence, there's no better story to sum it up than this one. Marcel Sternberger was a methodical man of nearly 50, with bushy white hair, guileless brown eyes, and the bouncing enthusiasm of a Zardus dancer of his native Hungary. He always took the 909 Long Island Railroad train from his suburban home to Woodside, New York, where he caught a subway into the city. 
On the morning of January 10, 1948, Sternberger boarded the 909 as usual. En route, he suddenly decided to visit Laszlo Victor, a Hungarian friend who lived in Brooklyn and was ill. Accordingly, at Ozone Park, Sternberger changed to the subway for Brooklyn, went to his friend's house and stayed until mid-afternoon. He then boarded a Manhattan-bound subway for his Fifth Avenue office. Here is Marcel's incredible story. The car was crowded and there seemed to be no chance of a seat. But just as I entered, a man sitting by the door suddenly jumped up to leave and I slipped into the empty place. I've been living in New York long enough not to start conversations with strangers. But being a photographer, I have the peculiar habit of analysing people's faces and I was struck by the features of the passenger on my left. He was probably in his late 30s and when he glanced up, his eyes seemed to have a hurt expression in them. He was reading a Hungarian language newspaper and something prompted me to say in Hungarian, I hope you don't mind if I glance at your paper. The man seemed surprised to be addressed in his native language, but he answered politely, you may read it now, I'll have time later on. During the half hour ride to town, we had quite a conversation. He said his name was Bella Paskin, a law student when World War II started. He had been put into a German labour battalion and sent to the Ukraine. Later, he was captured by the Russians and put to work burying the German dead. After the war, he covered hundreds of miles on foot until he reached his home in Debrecen, a large city in eastern Hungary. I myself knew Debrecen quite well and we talked about it for a while. Then he told me the rest of his story. When he went to the apartment once occupied by his father, mother, brothers and sisters, he found strangers living there. Then he went upstairs to the apartment that he and his wife once had. It was also occupied by strangers. None of them had ever heard of his family. As he was leaving, full of sadness, a boy ran after him calling Paskin Baski, Paskin Baski. That means Uncle Paskin. The child was the son of some old neighbours of his. He went to the boy's home and talked to his parents. Your whole family is dead, they told him. The Nazis took them and your wife to Auschwitz. Auschwitz was one of the worst Nazi concentration camps. Paskin gave up all hope. After a, a few days... Uh, too heartsick to remain any longer in Hungary, he set out again on foot, stealing across border after border until he reached Paris. He managed to immigrate to the United States in October of 1947, just three months before I met him. All the time he had been talking, I kept thinking that somehow his story seemed familiar. A young woman, here we go, whom I had met recently at the home of friends, had also been from Debrecen. She had been to Auschwitz... From there, she'd been transferred to work in a German munitions factory. Her relatives had been killed in the gas chambers. Later, she was liberated by the Americans and was brought here in the first boatload of displaced persons in 1946. Later, she was liberated by the Americans and was brought here in the first boatload of displaced persons in 1946. Her story had moved me so much that I had written down her address and phone number, intending to invite her to meet my family and thus help relieve the terrible emptiness in her life. It seemed impossible that there could be any connection between these two people. But as I neared my station, I fumbled anxiously in my address book. I asked him what I hoped was a casual voice. Was your wife's name Maria? <laughs> he turned pale. 
Yes, he answered. How did you know? He looked as if he were about to faint. I said, let's get off the train. I took him by the arm at the next station and led him to a phone booth. He stood there like a man in a trance while I dialed her phone number. It seemed hours before Maria Paskin answered. Later I learned her room was alongside the telephone, but she was in the habit of never answering it because she had so few friends and the calls were always for someone else. This time, however, there was no one else at home and after letting it ring for a while, she responded. When I heard her voice at last, I told her who I was and asked her to describe her husband. She seemed surprised at the question, but gave me a description. Then I asked her where she had lived in Debrecen, and she told me the address. Asking her to hold the line, I turned to Paskin and said, Did you and your wife live on such and such a street? (laughs) Yes, Bella exclaimed. He was white as a sheet and trembling. Try to be calm, I urged him. Something miraculous is about to happen to you. Here, take this telephone and talk to your wife. He nodded his head in mute bewilderment, his eyes bright with tears. He took the receiver, listened a moment to his wife's voice, then suddenly cried, this is Bella, this is Bella. And he began to mumble hysterically, seeing that the poor fellow was so excited he couldn't talk coherently. I took the receiver from his shaking hands. Stay where you are, I told Maria, who also sounded hysterical. I am sending your husband to you. We will be there in a few minutes. Bella was crying like a baby and saying over and over again, it is my wife, I go to my wife. At first I thought I had better accompany Paskin, lest the men should faint from excitement. But I decided that this was a moment in which no strangers should intrude. Putting Paskin into a taxi cab, I directed the driver to take him to Maria's address, paid the fare and said goodbye. Bella Paskin's reunion with his wife was a moment so poignant, so electric, with suddenly released emotion that afterward... Neither he nor Maria could recall much about it. I remember only that when I left the phone, I walked to the mirror like in a dream to see if maybe my hair had turned grey, she said later. The next thing I know, a taxi stops in front of the house and it's my husband who comes towards me. Details I cannot remember, only this I know, that I was happy for the first time in many years. Even now, it is difficult to believe that it happened. We have both suffered so much, I have almost lost the capability to not be afraid. Each time my husband goes from the house, I say to myself, will anything happen to take him from me again? Her husband is confident that no horrible misfortune will ever again befall. The providence has brought us together. He says simply, it was meant to be. Skeptical persons, Marcel goes on to say, skeptical persons will no doubt attribute the events of that memorable afternoon to mere chance. It was a chance that made Marcel Sternberger suddenly decide to visit his sick friend and hence take a subway line that he had never ridden before? Was it chance that caused the man sitting by the door of the car to rush out just as Sternberger came in? Was it chance that caused Bella Paskin to be sitting beside Sternberger reading a Hungarian newspaper? Was it chance? Or did God ride the Brooklyn subway that afternoon? Many of us have stories They may even sound similar to Bella Paskin. Many of us here, if we look over our own stories, probably have stories of God working in our lives. Many might attribute those events and circumstances in our lives to chance. Was it chance? Or did God intervene in your life? We're going to sing, and if you need prayer this morning, if the hand of heaven is knocking on your door, then the front is always open for us to pray with you. Let us pray as we finish this morning. Father, I thank you 
For you are the hound of heaven that loved us when we were unlovable. That when we were your enemies, Jesus, you walked the hill of Calvary and you spilt your blood willingly for each and every one of us. Thank you, Father, that you are conforming us into the image of your Son. Thank you that you've called each one of us. Father, I ask today that each person in this room would lose the word chance out of their dictionary and in place of it put the word providence. Thank you, Father, for your providence in our lives. Thank you that you take care of us and thank you that all all things work together for our good. In the wonderful name of Jesus, we pray this morning. Thanks for listening to the Rock Christian Church Podcast. To be notified when the next episode is available, subscribe on our website at therock.org.au. You can also connect with us on Facebook at The Rock Christian Church. We hope you have been blessed today and we look forward to you joining us for our next episode.